we are in the Gospel of Luke. We'll do the Gospel of Luke today and next week. The following week, we'll start looking at the book of Acts. Um, because Luke and Acts, as you'll see, go together. And then that is either going to take one or two weeks in Acts. Because I do want to show a comparison between the two books. And then after that, we'll get on to the Gospel of John. So, all right. Um, I do encourage you to open up your Bibles. Um, we're going to spend most of our day looking at the person of Luke. Luke is only mentioned like three times by name in the Bible. But I think once we establish some things, you'll see that there's a whole lot of information on what he did in his ministry um, in, the, in the Bible that we can look at. But I want to start with the idea that Luke and Acts should be viewed as one piece of work. They're one body of literature. And the same guy who wrote the book of Luke is the same guy who wrote the book of Acts. To demonstrate that, if you have ribbons in your Bible, I would recommend put one at Luke 1. And if you have another ribbon, put it in Acts 1. Or if you have a piece of paper or a bookmark, I'm using a bookmark since my Bible is deficient and only has one ribbon in it. And that way, we're going to flip back and forth between Luke 1 and Acts 1, and then we're going to go to the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. So if you have some markers in there, it'll make this a little bit easier. And again, we're looking to see that these are written by the same person. If you notice in Luke 1, down in verse 3, his prologue, it says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. He's writing to some guy named Theophilus. There's only one other mention of Theophilus in Scripture. It's in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Verse 1. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So in Luke 1, he writes to Theophilus and says, I'm going to compile for you the, the testimony of eyewitnesses. I've investigated this carefully, and I'm going to write a book to you about the person of Jesus. He gets to Acts, and he says, Now, I've already written to you about the life of Jesus. That's my first volume. Here's my second volume. And when he finishes Luke, go over to Luke 24... He finishes Luke with a promise. It's the promise of Jesus before Jesus departs. Luke 24, verse 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He ends his gospel by saying, you're going to receive power. You're going to receive power from God. How are they going to receive that power? The Holy Spirit. Go over to Acts chapter 1. Now the author is going to pick up that same idea that he closed out his first volume with. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. He begins his volume, volume 1, writing to Theophilus. He begins volume 2, writing to Theophilus. He even references volume 1. He ends volume 1 
with a statement that you will receive power. And when he writes his second volume, he picks up right where he left off. You're going to receive power. And from here on out, he explains in the book of Acts how and when they receive that power. Does that make sense? One unending narrative. Not really unending because it's two different books. One commentator said it this way. They are not merely two independent writings from the same pen. They are a single continuous work. Acts is, no, is neither an appendix nor an afterthought. It is probably an integral part of the author's original plan and purpose. If you're going to study the book of Luke, you need to study the book of Acts. And if you're going to study Acts, you need to look at the book of Luke. Edmund Hebert, we've talked about him before. He says, The virtual consensus of critical opinion is that the third gospel in Acts come from the same hand and were intended to form a single work. Now, if you want to be really, really nerdy, you can get really good at the Greek language, and you'll find out that the style and the manner of writing is the same between both books. But I don't have a way to demonstrate that in class. So I'm going to lean on some other people here. And together, this one author wrote 52 chapters. 52 chapters of your New Testament are written by the same guy. That's one-third of the New Testament. There's only one other writer of the New Testament who had that much influence. Paul. Luke acts, if you start at the beginning of Luke, he starts his gospel by describing the birth narrative of not only John the Baptist, but of Jesus. If you assume that these two books are one consecutive narrative, when you get to the end of Acts, where is Paul? He's in prison in Rome in his first imprisonment. You're talking about a time span of over 60 years. There is no other writer of the New Testament that provides so much information over such a long period of time. His books are completely amazing. And in 52 chapters, he never once says, Oh, by the way, my name is... He never points to himself. He never gives credit to himself. He never tries to draw your attention to him. He's content to stay in the background. Yes? Yeah, I would assume... Yeah. I don't know why they put them in that particular order, but from the earliest, the earliest codices that we have have them in that order. And we'll even see quotes today from people in the church that Luke is considered the third gospel, and that that's just kind of the order it ended up in. I would imagine John was put right after Luke, because John is also writing a gospel, whereas Acts is more of a, a history of the church. Yeah. That would be my assumption, but that's a good question. Luke is happy to sink into the shadows. Why would Luke not want his name on it? Why would he not put, give his name to his own work? Because he was not a, disciple, a direct disciple of Jesus, so I would think that that would... And everybody else was, you know, so I'm sure in that company, I would think that that would... You would feel like, okay, well, should my name maybe be on this because I wasn't one of those disciples? 
He was, we'll, we'll talk about that, yes, but yes, he was. He was a Gentile. He was not part of the apostles. Those are good reasons. Any other reasons he might not want to have his name on there? No, and for himself, Christ and putting it on himself. Yeah, there you go. Good. He's writing about Christ, and his goal is to point people to Christ. And his friend Theophilus here, he says in verse 4, Luke 1, he says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Theophilus is probably a believer. He's probably been recently converted. You notice he says the things you have been taught. And he's writing to Theophilus to give him a full testimony of everything that happened in the life of Christ. And so he, he wants to fade into the background. But that brings us to a question. In Luke 1, verse 3, he said, it seemed fitting for me as well. Well, if the author is never named in the book, then who is the me? How do we know who this is? He doesn't identify himself. So how do we know who is actually the author? Well, to know that, we need to start by looking at the external evidence. There's some evidence from church history that is helpful. What did the early church say? What did those people who are closest to the apostles say about the author of this book, or these two books? Did they have an opinion on this? Was there a debate back then? Today, if you read commentaries, there's some debate going on. Did Luke actually write this? When you look at the early church, what you find is you find a unanimous, undebated conclusion on who the author is. There's no question on who the author is. Uh, Donald Guthrie said at no time were any doubts raised regarding this attribution to Luke. And certainly no alternatives were put forward. The tradition could hardly be stronger. Edmund Heber, the uniform testimony of the Christian tradition dating back to early times, names Luke as the author of the third gospel. In the early church, there was no doubt about who wrote the book of Luke. So what are some of those witnesses from uh, the early church? The first witness we have are the early manuscripts. All the early manuscripts of Luke have a certain title on them. And every single manuscript we have has the same title, according to Luke. This is a a page out of Codex Vaticanus. And I won't ask people on the front row to read uh, from it. Um, based on the name, I'll give you three guesses on where they found this codex. In the Vatican. They found it in the Vatican Library, I think in the 1800s. Um, it dates back to the 4th century. Now, I know you can't read... Well, some of you might be able to, but there is some writing on there that seems more reasonable to us, but... Kata is according to, and that's Luke. According to Luke. And when you get to the very first verse down here, that's Luke 1.1. 1, 1. This dates back to the 4th century. Here's another codex, also from the 4th century, and the name of it always gets me. It's like Sinai to kiss. Once again, this is the Gospel of Luke, and if you look at the top, 
Same thing. All the early scribes attributed this book to the guy named Luke. Then there's another witness that we can look at. How many of you know who Marcion was? Somebody knows. Marcion? Marcion was a heretic of the second century. He was uh, the guy that inspired Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson took his Bible and took a pair of scissors to it and started cutting things out that he didn't like. And he cut out good portions of the New Testament. Well, Marcion did the same thing. And he cut out the majority of the New Testament and he left of the Gospels only portions of the Gospel of Luke. And he was going around telling people that the rest of the New Testament wasn't inspired and it can't be trusted. And so the early church had to refute this guy somehow, and so they decided that when they made copies of the Gospel of Luke, they would put a prologue on the front end of the Gospel. And they did this on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when we find manuscripts from that time period, some of them have these little prologues on them explaining what the Gospel is. The Gospel meaning that book. And refuting Marcion. It's called the Anti-Marcionite Prologue. It dates to about 160 to 180, so roughly 100 years after the last apostle died. Here's what it said. Luke composed all of this gospel in the districts around Achaia, although they were already gospels in existence, one according to Matthew, one according to Mark. When they went and did that, and they wrote those little prologues, they were very clear on who wrote this gospel. And I want you to note, we talked about Matthew a few weeks ago. Notice there's three gospels listed here. John is not listed here, that's true. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all described as being part of the gospels. All right, that's them refuting heretics. What about some people just who weren't trying to refute heretics? Irenaeus. What do you guys know about Irenaeus? Well, church history class. Like, come on, I came out here for a New Testament survey, you're doing church history? Did he quote most of the, most of the New Testament letters other than like five or something? Yeah, he, was, he quoted a lot of scripture, yeah. What else is unique about Irenaeus? Irenaeus had a teacher. Who was his teacher? Hmm? It's a guy named Polycarp. Anybody ever heard that name? Polycarp was 86 years old when he was martyred, and there was a story of his martyrdom when he was supposed they tried to burn him, and it says that when they tried to burn him, the fire arced around his body instead of burning him. And then when the guy realized, the guy I'm supposed to be killing right now isn't dying, he ordered the, the soldier to run him through with a sword, and they ran him through with a sword, and what came out of him put the fire out. Little mythical. It comes from one letter... That's Polycarp. Why is Polycarp important? Because Polycarp was a disciple of the, the Apostle John. Irenaeus was the student of Polycarp. Polycarp was the student of John. Here's what Irenaeus said about the Gospel of Luke. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the Gospel preached by him. Irenaeus, one step removed from the Apostle John, said... This book is written by Luke. Uh, in our class on 
canonicity and textual criticism. I talked to you about the Muratorian canon from around 170, and it listed most of the New Testament books. In the Muratorian canon, the third book of the Gospel according to Luke, Luke, the well-known physician, wrote, it in his own name, according to the belief after the ascension of Christ, when Paul had associated him as one zealous for correctness, though he had not seen the Lord in the flesh, yet having ascertained the facts, he was able to begin the narrative with the nativity of John. Clearly describing the book you now know as the Gospel according to Luke. And he attributes it to Luke the physician. Tertullian which, by the way, some of these guys we're about to look at, we wouldn't embrace everything they said. Uh, Tertullian, towards the end of his life, embraced some things that are completely wrong. But Tertullian, of the apostles, therefore, John and Matthew first and saw faith in us, while the apostolic men, Luke and Mark, renew it afterward. He's just talking about their writings. And he names all four Gospels, including Luke. And then Origen, speaking of people we don't agree with completely. Origen, thirdly, the gospel according to Luke. Those are the early witnesses. Do you hear any doubt in who wrote the book of Luke? Um, you guys know who William Hendrickson is? He wrote a great historical book called The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. Um, he, he's a really good historian. Here's what he said about this. The cumulative evidence in favor of Luke's authorship is as strong as anyone can reasonably expect it to be. You can't have a stronger argument from antiquity on who wrote a book. Multiple eyewitnesses. Multiple eyewitnesses say he wrote this book. Uh, you can also look at the church historian Eusebius. You can look at Jerome both of them also point to Luke as the author. All right. So this guy, Luke, is the author. So who is Luke? We've talked about he's the author. We've talked about he wrote Luke and Acts. But who is he? Well, as you guys mentioned, he's not an apostle. How do we know that? Luke 1, if you'll go there, Luke 1, verse 1, And as much as... Many have undertaken to complete an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. How does that prove he was not an apostle? Sorry? The word they, he they. himself in the apostles. Right. Say we. Yeah, he says they, so he's talking about them in the third person. They were eyewitnesses from the beginning. In Acts 1, when they go to uh, find a replacement for Judas, Acts 1.21, he says, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accomplished, uh, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. To be an apostle, you had to be there from the beginning. And Luke, in Luke 1, clearly says he was not there from the beginning, but he had to go find those people who were. So we know Luke is not an apostle. 
He was likely a Gentile. We say likely because the Bible doesn't tell us he was a Gentile directly. It, you just have to infer it by a couple of things. Acts 1, in that same story about um, them finding a replacement for Judas, Acts 1, verse 19, says, And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that their lang- their whoa wow, so that in their own language that field was called uh, Hakodama, that is field of blood. It became known to all those who were in Jerusalem, so that in their language, the people, the language of the people living in Jerusalem, which was what Hebrew. He calls it their language. It's not his own language. Colossians 4 is another place you can go to see that he was a Gentile. Colossians 4, starting in verse 10, Paul is going to list his companions, some of his fellow laborers. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, cousin... Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. These are his only workers from the circumcision. These are the only Jews that are working with him at that point. But he's not done listing his companions. He's not done listing out the people who are his fellow workers. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your member, number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the full will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and, and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. He starts by listing out the people who are of the circumcision that are with him. And the next list are people who are not of the circumcision, who are not Jews. Luke is among those individuals who is not considered to be a Jew. He is likely a Gentile. He does not speak the Hebrew language. He does not refer to himself as someone who lives in Jerusalem. Tradition, by tradition, of course, we just mean what the early church said. Tradition says that he was from Antioch. Antioch is a little town in Syria. Um, In the book of Acts, I'll just hit some of these. Acts 11, he seems to have a focus on, on this little town of Antioch, and he mentions it repeatedly. Acts 11 Verse 19, so uh, that those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Acts 13, verse 1, now there were at Antioch uh, in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Acts 14, verse 26, I'm just going to hit these just so you can see it. Verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended. Acts 15, 22, and 35. Acts 18, 22, 
just keeps going back and referring to Antioch. Now, does this prove he was from Antioch? Not necessarily. Be because these are just events that are occurring and he's just recording the narrative. But the early church viewed this as being from being an indicator that he was from Antioch. And in fact, I talked about the anti-Marcionite prologue a few minutes ago. I didn't read everything it said about Luke. Luke is a man from Antioch, Syria, a physician by profession. So the early church would have believed that Luke was um, from Antioch, that he was a Gentile, he was not a Jew, and that he was a convert to Christianity, we just don't know when or how. Maybe he was converted by Paul. And when we look in the book of Acts and we start learning a little bit more about Luke's ministry, we'll see how deeply connected he is with Paul. What we can also tell about Luke is that he was highly educated. We've already seen multiple times he's been called a physician. We'll get there. But one of the ways you can tell he's really educated is in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the prologue to his gospel. And there's something different about his prologue from the rest of the gospel. And it's his manner of writing. Most of the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. It's written in layman's Greek, the, the common vernacular Greek. The prologue is written in classical Greek. It's the Greek of Aristotle and Plato and the other Greek writers. It's the, it's the Greek of literature. He writes his prologue in that Greek. It's the kind of Greek that they would expect in higher education of the day. Only the most educated would use it. A.T. Robertson said, The prologue deserves comparison with those in any Greek and Latin writers. There is a standard form for the prologue. And he follows that form perfectly. Just like any other writer of his day. Leon Moore said, It stamps the work as literature and shows that it was not originally intended, for example, for liturgical purposes. When Luke wrote this, he wasn't writing this just so you could worship. Obviously, that's what he wants. But Luke wanted his writing to be accepted as being worthy of being read worthy of being studied. And so he puts this prologue on there, and it puts his work on the same level as all the other intellectual writers of his day. This is something that you can study that is worth your time and your investment. Luke knew the Old Testament, but he didn't know the Old Testament in Hebrew. All of his quotations in his gospel come from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And when you get to Luke 3, the rest of the rest of it, from Luke 3 to the end of the gospel, the style and the flow of it is just like the Septuagint. He knew his Greek Old Testament really, really well. The Greek here, I'm sorry? Yeah. Finish in that 
or is that was that just how literature was written? That's a good question. I don't know that I know the answer if that's normal, but the prologue for him, I would imagine the reason he switched just to make sure everybody could read it. But when you go and look, um, when you look at what he did and how he wrote it, and we'll show this in a minute, he proves himself to be an extraordinary intelligent man. This man was highly educated. And so the prologue would have just been the way to get them into it, right? And so that's, that's kind of my, my assumption on how it's done or why he did it that way. But this, this book, both of them prove that he was extremely well-educated. Um, another quote here, A.T. Robertson. It is a book that only a man with genuine culture and literary genius could write. A.T. Robertson knows his Greek a lot better than I do. <laughs> One of the ways you can tell this is because of the wording that he uses, the vocab that he uses. When you look at... Um, English writers, there's some English writers that some of us, we start reading, we're like, that's another language. I don't know what you're talking about. Because their vocab is just beyond us. Mark, when Mark wrote, and you go through the Gospel of Mark, he used some words that no other writer in the New Testament used. He used 79 words that you won't find anywhere else in the New Testament, including Luke and Acts. Matthew did the same thing. Matthew actually had more. He used 116 words that no other New Testament writer would use. So Matthew had a pretty good vocab. Luke kind of blows them all out of the water. He uses 266 words no other New Testament writer uses. Had an extensive vocab. Really, really smart guy. This guy was really educated, and he was a historian. If you look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, he goes to eyewitnesses, and he tells you, I'm going to eyewitnesses. I'm gathering information from these people. And he identifies his sources. Why would he identify his sources? Right. It marks him as a credible historian. I'm telling you where I got this information from. If you want to go back and find the same people, go talk to them. He's writing to Theophilus. Theophilus, hey, if you want to check this, go back and verify what I've done and what I've written. Also notice in Luke 1, verse 2, he says, I'm writing to you what has been handed down. He's writing another gospel, but it's not a new gospel. He's not writing something that nobody's ever heard of before. In Colossians 4, verse 14, Paul describes Luke. We've already looked at 4.14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician. Remember when we looked at Matthew? We saw in Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector, and we saw some language in Matthew that would be relevant for a tax collector. And he focused on things that tax collectors might be focused on. In Luke, you find the same thing, but you find it for someone who's in medicine, someone who's interested in medicine. He's got an interesting perspective. Details. Details, yes. He includes details nobody else includes. So, um, I need some people who would like to do some reading, okay? I want a couple of you to turn to Matthew, or, or are there a couple who would like to turn to Matthew? A couple turn to Mark, and a couple of you stay in Luke. 
because I'm going to give some verses, and this will be faster if everybody reads a verse or two. That'll work. Okay, the first table is Matthew, second table is Mark, and the last table is Luke. Okay, and I'm going to give you some verses. The first one is a woman with a hemorrhage. This woman comes to Jesus. She's had this hemorrhage for 12 years. Um, would someone on the second table read Mark 5, 25 and 26? Mark just throws the doctors under a bus and says she spent all of her money and not only did they help her, they didn't help her, but she got worse. Now listen to how Luke the physician describes it. Luke 8, 34, I'm sorry, 43 through 44. Would someone in the back table read that? Yeah, all he says there is, she could not be healed by anyone. I heard a doctor say this was a professional courtesy. He didn't want to throw the physicians under a bus. And he just said nobody could heal her. And he left the rest of it out. Sounds like something a physician would do. He didn't um, want to draw attention to himself again. Yeah, yeah, he didn't want, to, didn't want to draw attention to it. All right, let's go over to the story of the leper. Matthew 8, 2. Mark 1.40, and Luke 4.38. This is the story of a leper who comes to Jesus to be healed. And would someone be willing to read Matthew 8, verse 2? Matthew 8.2. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How does Matthew describe him? A leper. That's all he says about it. Okay, Mark 1, verse 40. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Okay, Mark describes him as a leper. How does Luke the physician, Luke 4, 38. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. That's not correct. I'm sorry, Luke 5.12. My typo. We're going to be at that one in a minute. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How does Luke describe him? A man covered with leprosy. Why is that relevant? It's relevant because when you look in Leviticus 13 and it gives the description of how the priests identify leprosy, it's talking about just a spot of leprosy. And it says if there's a spot of leprosy on your arm, you're declared unclean and you become a leper and you're sent out of the camp. So it clarifies the, the degree of leprosy. Right. Right. This is a man who doesn't have a spot of leprosy. This is a man who's had leprosy for long enough. It has now spread to his entire body. It covers him. Sounds like what a physician would say. 
Sounds like a detail a physician would want. Uh, you can do the same with a man with the, the hand. Um, Matthew 12.10. My mind just went blank on me. Okay, so there he's just a man's hand was withered. Mark three one. And he entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Okay, again, just a hand. Luke six six. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand. Little, little bit more detail on the issue, and the, this is the last one: the, the high priest's servant. Remember uh, when they went to arrest Jesus, and he cut off an ear. Matthew twenty-six, verse fifty-one. And behold, one of those, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Okay. He just cut off an ear. Mark fourteen forty seven. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Okay. Just cut off an ear. And finally, Luke twenty two fifty. A little bit more detailed. Luke seems to focus in on the details of these situations and the medical condition that's there. Now again, does this prove without any doubt that Luke was a physician? That the author here was a physician? Yeah. yeah. So no, it's not absolute proof, but it does point to the idea that he was in medicine. Um, Everett Harrison the net result of the various investigations is that the language of Luke's Acts is thoroughly compatible with the authorship of a medical man, but does not prove that he must have been a physician. So just because he uses this kind of language doesn't mean he is a physician. But Paul does call him the beloved physician. This is a man that Paul loved and found to be dear. This idea of being beloved is used to describe someone who's caring, someone who's loving and gentle. It's the kind of doctor you don't want to lose. And Paul got hurt quite a bit, so to have a doctor with you was really helpful. And he personally accompanied Paul on a lot of Paul's journeys. And for the time that we have remaining, I want to go into the book of Acts, and I just want to walk you through the book of Acts and Luke showing up in the book of Acts, even though he's not named. How does Luke show up in the book of Acts when he's not named, when he doesn't name himself? He shows up by changing the pronouns. Instead of talking about he and they and she, he says, we, us. This first happens during Paul's third missionary journey. The third missionary journey starts in Acts 15.36 and goes all the way through Acts 18.22. But go over to Acts 16, and we'll see this for the first time. 
Acts 16, there's a group of people together. The group is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. We know Timothy is there. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman. We know Silas was there, Acts 16, 19. Silas is in, with them. Uh, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. But then in Acts 16, verse 11, I want you to notice something. Acts 16, verse 11, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. That's the author. It's the first time the author shows up in the book of Acts. And he includes himself in the group of people that are leaving from Macedonia and going from Troas and departing from there. Luke, while he was with them, was involved in preaching. Luke was a preacher. He wasn't just a physician. Luke 16, verse 10. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. He was involved in preaching. He was involved in one-on-one -on -one ministry. Acts 16, 13, on the, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that they would be, wow, there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women assembled. He's intimately involved in the preaching, the teaching, the discipleship of the ministry. He's a witness to many of the miracles of Paul. Acts 16, verse 16, you'll remember the story of the woman who's following around Paul in this group, and she's demon-possessed, and she's yelling at them and yelling about them. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. Luke is there to witness these events. Acts 16, verse 22 through 30, Paul and Silas are imprisoned. We're not told that Luke is there. There's not a we passage there. But we have to assume because he knows what's going on that he's at least close by. Acts 16, 31 through 39, the Philippian jailer is converted. Notice Acts 16, verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. For some reason, Luke is left behind in Philippi. And Paul and the rest of the group leave for Thessalonica. And Luke doesn't rejoin the group for a while, for several years. It isn't until Acts 20 uh, that he shows up again in Acts 20. This is on Paul's third missionary journey. Acts 20, verse 4. Uh, let's see here. I want to start there. Yeah, Acts 20, verse 4. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and 
Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Once again, Luke shows up and he's there with them. We're not told when he arrived. We're not told why he got there then. Acts 20, verse 15. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite uh, Chios. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we came to Miletus. Verse 17 and following, Paul meets with the elders of Ephesus in Miletus. It was close by, and he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come to him. Luke is still there with them, and he's listening in, and he records some of the conversation and what happened there. Acts 21, verse 1. When we had parted from them, that would be the elders, and we had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day in Rhodes, and from there to Patara. They leave. They arrive in Tyre, Acts 21, verse 4. After looking at the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul is going to go to Jerusalem, and Luke is going to go with him. Paul knows he's probably going to be arrested when he gets there, and Luke stays by his side. Verse 15, After these days we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Acts 21, verse 17, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Luke is still with them. They've made the trip. They've got to Jerusalem. Luke is still there. Acts 21, verse 27, Paul is arrested. We're not going to read through that. It's all written in the third person, just describing what happened to Paul. But if Luke is able to describe what's going on, he was probably there to see it. He arrived with Paul in Jerusalem. How do we know that Paul was likely there? Because he's quoting. Acts 22, if you notice, verse 1 starts with a quotation. He's recording everything that's said. Acts uh, 23, same thing. It's a whole bunch of quotations. In Acts 23, 12 through 22, there's a plot. The plot is to kill Paul. And there's some Jews that come up with this idea, we're going to kill Paul. So, Paul's already been arrested. And the Roman soldiers say, we need to get Paul out of here. We need to protect him so he's not killed on our watch. Acts 23, 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Paul is going to be taken to Caesarea to be held there by the Romans until they can have a trial for him. Acts 24. I think, is that 24? Yeah, 24. No, I have that wrong. Acts 23, 33. 
When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Paul arrives in Caesarea, and he's going to stay there for two years. Acts 24, 27. But after two years had passed, Felix was successful, uh, succeeded by uh, Portius Festus. Paul stays in prison for two years in Caesarea. Why is that relevant? It's relevant because Luke is with him. Luke isn't in prison, but he's likely ministering to Paul while he's in prison. Uh, where's the verse? Yeah, Acts 24, 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. The Romans were allowing other people to come in and minister to Paul. And Luke is likely among those people. But this is also important because this is two years that Luke is going to stay in Caesarea. Caesarea is in Israel. It's a place where Jesus ministered. It's a day or two away from other major cities where Jesus ministered. This gives Luke two years to do the research that he needs to do. This gives him ample time to go find people that he can talk to. It's very likely that while he was there, he met Matthew. It's likely he may have even met Mary. We know from the lists that Paul gives that Mark and Luke were with Paul at the same time. So he likely knew Mark. Well, he definitely knew Mark. And that's the last we hear of the we passages. That's the last we hear of Luke until the end of the book. Acts 27. He shows up again. In Acts 27, Paul has finally been in prison long enough, and they're now going to ship him off to Rome to go stand in front of Caesar. Acts 27, verse 1, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in the ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus of Macedonia a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So they put out to sea. We don't get any more we statements until the end of chapter 27. 27, 29 is the final time we see we in the book of Acts. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. That's the last we hear of Luke. But because he's on the ship with them, we assume that he made it to Rome. And we assume that because the rest of the book of Acts describes Paul arriving in Rome, where he is imprisoned in Rome. This is the first Roman imprisonment. This is the first time Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He's released from here, he's released from this Roman imprisonment somewhere around 63 B.C., 63 BC, 63 AD. Wow, that put him back 100 years. Okay. And while he's in this first Roman imprisonment, what does Paul do? Relevant to the New Testament. What does Paul do while he's in prison? 
he writes. What letters does he write in prison? Ephesians, and one more, little tiny book, Philemon, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. He writes these books, and he writes them during the time period right after starting in Acts 28 and going on, and he's writing while he's in prison in Rome, and it's here we find that Luke shows up again. We read Colossians 4.14. Colossians 4 is a prison epistle. And he says, Luke is with me. End of the book of Acts. The we's are traveling along with Paul. Colossians, we get Luke is with me. He's still here. He hasn't left. Uh, Philemon. Philemon 24. Oh my goodness, I just lost my spot. is the other mention of Luke. Philemon 24, let's start in 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Luke's still there. Hasn't gone anywhere. Paul is eventually released in 63. And... He goes on what is likely his fourth missionary journey. I think you can argue that the book of Titus was written right after Paul plants a church in Crete and goes on his fourth missionary journey. Somewhere along that mission, he is arrested again. He is taken back to Rome, and he writes his final letter. What's Paul's final letter? 2 Timothy. And if you read through 2 Timothy, it's obvious that Paul expects to die. He knows he's coming to an end. Verse 10, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Well, let me just go back to verse 9. He tells Timothy, Make every effort to come to me soon. Why? For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, he lumps all of those together, it would seem like at least some of those are deserting him. Titus, there's no mention of Titus deserting Paul anywhere, and everything Paul says about Titus seems to say that Titus was a faithful worker. But verse 16, Paul says, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be accounted against them. It seems like these workers who were with Paul realized that his end was near, and if the Romans were going to kill Paul, there's a good chance they're going to die too, and many of them just took off and ran. Maybe they went to do ministry somewhere else. Maybe they went to hide. We don't know. But Paul says, may it not be counted against them. But where is Luke? Verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. There's faithful Luke, still standing by his guy, still serving as a physician, still doing ministry along with Paul. He hasn't left. Luke is pictured here as a very faithful 
minister, as a preacher, he's a pastor, he's a physician, and he's a good friend of Paul. Perfectly suited to write the book of Acts. And because of his education, he's perfectly suited to write the gospel of Luke. Questions? Is that helpful? You know, when you think about the prisons and that, if it wouldn't be for Luke, or Paul probably would not have been, would have stayed alive as long as he did because of the conditions that they were under. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it would be very nice to have your own personal physician just following you around. And you go to like 2 Corinthians 11 where he's talking about all the things that have happened to him. You, you see a guy who could really use a doctor. <laughs> You know, when you were talking about the higher uh, language that he wrote in Greek, uh, it, it might be because, uh, one of the reasons that uh, uh, God let him do the, or had him do the writing is to reach the higher echelon of people that mm-hmm. would read, they wouldn't read the common everyday stuff, but because he was a doctor and wrote in the higher uh, language. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, so that may be one of the reasons why is because um, he can appeal to those individuals in a way that the other writers wouldn't appeal to them. All right. Any other comments, questions, concerns, gripes, moans, groans, complaints? No? Okay. Well, let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you for the man, Luke, the physician. Um, He sounds like a man that would have been very beloved, a faithful man, faithful to you, faithful to Paul, and faithful to present to us uh, the truth of what happened there in a logical, concise way. We just ask that you would bless us as we study this book and that you would bless our time of worship this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.